Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to Provocative Enlightenment dot com forward slash chat we do have a great chat room so ravinder would you like to share the glory of your chat room with us the glory of the chat room is just exciting conversation um some fun we have a bit of a laugh in the chat room too but we do um discuss generally what is going on on the air and then we um, ask each other questions and people in the chat room always come up with some great answers so it adds an entire new dimension to the subject matter at hand it's definitely worth you coming in if you can obviously not if you're driving or something like that but if you can if you can go online go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat and come say hello all right in this week's spotlight i want to draw your attention to some important and yet generally little-known aspects about music. Years ago, I became interested in the power of sound. One of my early studies had to do with replicating a finding I discovered having to do with the influence of music on animals. The study I'm referred to showed that cows gave more milk when they listened to soothing songs like Bridge Over Troubled Water. According to the study, cows find it easy to release oxytocin, which is a hormone that is related to the milk process when they listen to music. Studies have shown that playing slow, rhythmic music influences animals and lowers their stress. Indeed, psychologists at the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom experimented with music and milk production by testing fast music and slow music to two different groups of cows. The results showed that the cows that listened to slow music increased their milk output by 3%. Meanwhile, cows that heard fast music showed no change in milk production. Following up on this study, many began testing other animals and the influence music had on their production. For example, Spanish scientists have found that playing classical music to layer hens reduces their stress levels building on previous studies that show calmer chickens have heavier eggs. Others discovered that chickens laid more eggs. Additionally, dogs are more relaxed in kennels when listening to classical music. Bird brains react to music similar to how humans react to music. Fish can identify composers. And elephants may actually be better at playing music than humans. What's more, scientists have learned to write music that cats and monkeys favorably respond to. Studies have shown that many animals create music and that music can influence the mood states of animals. So the fact is, music has a universal influence on the entire animal kingdom. Well, what about plants? It turns out that studies have also found positive effects of music on plants. Dr. T.C. Singh also discovered that seeds that were exposed to music and later germinated produced plants that had more leaves, were of greater size, and had other improved characteristics. It practically changed the plant's genetic chromosomes, he said. Working around the same time as Singh, Canadian engineer Eugene Canby exposed wheat to J.S. Bach's Violin Sonata and observed a 66% increase in yield. Camby's research reinforces Singh's findings. Okay, back to my own research. Using my stallion stables at the time, and during breeding season, I initiated two quick studies. This is a time of stress in a breeding stable. The stallions are anxious, the mares are nervous, even when they're ready to receive the stud, and this excitement causes all the horses to pace and wave their heads and necks, 
back and forth. While playing easy listening music, we watched this stress disappear. The horses became much quieter, threw much less hay on the ground, and their water consumption returned to normal. Then I tried playing heavy metal music and witnessed tension rise. This sort of music appeared to worsen the nervousness and increase the stress, so we stopped it after less than a full day. One way I have evaluated music is with a device given me by one of the co-inventors of ultrasound, Mr. Vic Waddell. The device is a cymatic unit that displays the geometry of music live time. I have seen the geometry of music, and some is organic, beautiful, while other music is so discordant as to represent only a helter mix of non-organic images. Every week, we play our guest's favorite music right here on this show. It's interesting to me in many ways, and we have often discovered some truly self-disclosing aspects about our guest. Music continues to be an important part of who we are. Just this past week, I posted a study that showed tailored music sessions could be crucial in transforming the lives of millions of people whose speech is impacted by learning difficulties, strokes, dementia, brain damage, and autism. Music has awakened those with serious cognitive issues, such as Alzheimer's patients, who are unable to even answer yes or no questions. Play the right tune, and suddenly they are fully alert and aware and cognizant of their surroundings, able to dance a jig, answer questions, and carry on a normal conversation. I could go on and on about the power of music, but it astounds me that somehow we lost the importance of music in our educational system. Dropping classes in music theory and or appreciation in many schools. For me, it's time we bring music back into our schools and embrace its sometimes magical power to heal. My thoughts anyway, what are yours, Ravinder? No, I think the whole subject about music is uh, really fascinating. Um, you know, you have music in a spiritual context and community context, and so it's, it's very significant to all of us. I do have a question for you, though. You know, you're talking about the effects of music, and it's like, am I hearing two different things here? So you can have the power of music and generally that's going to be the more um, inspiring, relaxing or classical music. It doesn't tend to be the hard rock or the, you know, other crazy sounds out there. Um, so you, ha you have that part of it, which is more mechanical. But then when you're talking about people, say, with Alzheimer's who respond to music, from what I've heard, that tends to be um, whatever their preferred music was beforehand. So is that going to be a different effect? Is it because they're remembering the music and that aids the triggering of the awakening that we can see sometimes? That's a good question, but I think you're talking about apples and oranges here. If we're looking at music um, increasing the productivity of chickens, cows, or what have you, we're looking at lowering stress. Music that lowers stress is not necessarily the music that I heard when I was 14 years of age, no. and it was rock and roll, <laughs> okay? Uh, the music, on the other hand, that the Alzheimer's patient responds to is meaningful music to them. And yet, at the same time I say that, and there are several of these on YouTube that our listening audience can go out and look at, when these people awaken, they're not listening to acid rock, they're, the music that they're listening to is never, it may be upbeat music like the old rock and roll, but it's not the discordant sounds that I see in a cymatic device that come as a result of just crashing metal. Yeah. Okay? All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last live show featured Kathy Bird, and we spoke about her son and book, soon to become a movie, The Boy Who Knew Too Much. Jason wrote, wow, just imagine having your child remember a past life so vividly. I think that would scare me. Lisa wrote, her pastor has to be among the worst I have heard of, telling Kathy that her son must be possessed by the devil. That was kind of crazy. Yeah. 
Emily wrote, I want to see the movie, but I can't wait, so I guess I'll buy the book. I didn't know who Lou Gehrig was, but when I looked him up, I see why Kathy is helping him with baseball so much and so early in his life. Kimberly wrote, I love stories like these. They fascinate me fascinate me to no end. But who would you but who would you even begin to talk to about this? Even though there have been many past life remembrances, there is still so much controversy. It would cause me to have fear about how people would treat my son. How would you decide to go about this and still be safe? I think that's a really relevant question. Billy wrote, I love the show. Moving on, Karen wrote this about my book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will. If you are one of those people who believes that ignorance is bliss, then this book is not for you. So who is it for? It is for the enlightened souls who are on a mission to change the world for the better. If you are one of those, then you must read this book. Once again, Eldon Taylor has demonstrated with mastery and ample evidence that our world is not what it seems. As a holistic physician, I am always counseling my patients to become aware of what goes in, on, and around their minds and bodies. Eldon's book uncovers to what lengths corporations and government will go in order to keep people numb, dumb, and unhealthy. If you're willing to go through the gamut of so-called negative emotions, shock, indignation, anger, and hopelessness, and come out the other side, you'll be empowered by the knowledge found in this book, like I was. Every day we are being called to awaken from our unconscious slumber by transformational teachers worldwide in order to save our planet and our children. Eldon Taylor is one of those who I consider a superhero. Thank you, Eldon, for your courage and willingness to bring others to the light. Well, thank you, Karen. Superhero. I've never been called a superhero, but that's I a very I call you nice... that every day. Come oh, on. Get out of here. <laughs> you want me to tell our audience what you really call me? All right. <laughs> that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show. I saw a light and I came here. Children's Experiences of Reincarnation with the author, Professor Erlander Haraldson. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Erlander Haraldson is a professor emeritus of psychology on the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Iceland. He has published hundreds of articles in peer-reviewed psychology and psychiatry journals. In addition... He has also published parapsychology books and authored a number of papers for parapsychology journals. Since his retirement from teaching, he has continued to conduct research and published articles. In 2007, he brought about the establishment of an endowment at the University of Iceland to support research into paranormal phenomena and alleged psychic experiences in the spirit of the research he conducted during his career. In the late 1980s, he started to investigate cases of children who claimed to remember a past life. First in Sri Lanka, over 60 cases, and later in Lebanon, 30 cases. He published many papers on these investigations and on three psychological studies of these children that followed. His book on the subject, I Saw a Light and Came Here, was published in 2016. We'll be discussing that in detail today. Since then, three documentaries have been made of some of his reincarnation cases. The first by BBC, then by Channel 4 in Britain, and by Storyhouse Productions in Washington for the Discovery Channel. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Erlander Haraldson. Nice to be with you. I've been really looking forward to this show and, and our opportunity to share, Professor. So... But first, we like to know three things, basically, on the show. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? I believe you were trained under Hans Bender, the German parapsychologist. So tell us, how much influence did Bender have on your career, sir? Well, he he aroused my interest in the field, but he was not particularly interested in in, uh, children remember past life. His interest was more with poltergeists, uh, 
telepathy, clairvoyance, and so on, and healing. And he was a very remarkable man, and I uh, I obtained my PhD from him. So your initial interest in parapsychology was uh, inspired by Bender? Uh, sorry, I don't hear you. So let's let's talk about you then. Were you raised in a religious family, inclined or predisposed to believe in the supernatural? I mean, a lot of PhD students might meet the subject of parapsychology and shake their head at it. Yes. Well, um, uh, well, the, the question of parapsychology is essentially an empirical question. It is a not. Uh, uh, a question where you should some, have, you should have some overbelief or uh, be very critical against, but just let to see what is the evidence for the genuineness of the phenomena that we are discussing. Okay, so let's begin there. Let's discuss your research methodology. Were you conducting surveys, carrying out participatory investigations, interviewing subjects, or just how did you proceed? to gather the data you have compiled. Yes, I did some surveys in Iceland about the belief of the population in the various paranormal phenomena and the attitudes towards the paranormal and also to religious issues. That was what I did uh, uh, when I uh, got my position here at the University of Iceland in 1963-64. But my involvement in cases who remember past life, that started in the late 80s, and that really came through my uh, my um, acquaintance and friendship with, with uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia. I made an, uh, an, uh, an internship in clinical psychology at the University of Virginia, in 1970 and 71, and then I came to know Dr. Stevenson quite well, and we uh, even then had some uh, uh, common projects. But in the late 80s, I think it was in 88, uh, when he had been studying cases of children who remember past lives for over 30 years, he decided to get a few uh, uh, solid scholars, in his view, to uh, uh, replicate his studies, and he asked me if I would like to uh, study some cases, and yes, I said I would be, especially if I had uh, the opportunity to study uh, many enough cases to make a psychological study of the children, are these children who claim memory of past life any different from other normal children. Uh, and he accepted that, and then I started to study children in uh, cases of that kind in uh, Sri Lanka. Okay, I, I want to discuss a few cases with you, but first, did you derive any common denominators, uh, as a result of your investigations across uh, all of these children? Um, so, sorry, I have difficulties hearing you well enough. Uh, Let me ask um, it again. My, my question is, of, of all of the children who remembered past lives, did uh, you discover any common denominators, uh, anything in common? Yes, there were several. First of all, they started talking about the past life, usually at the age of two to three, or almost as early as when they know how to speak. Secondly, they will have memories, and some of these memories are about events that led to their deaths. And in uh, in about uh, uh, three-fourths or four-fifths of the cases, they uh, recall having suffered a violent death, namely be, 
uh, having died through accidents or even murder or some, or in actual war. That's very common with them. Then they also have uh, uh, another uh, characteristic. They very much like to meet their previous family. And they would often say to their mother, the present mother, you are not my real mother. I want to go and find my previous home and my earlier mother. That is uh, quite common with them. And uh, yes, and and they, uh, so on the average, they will make uh, maybe up to 20 different statements. So you break down their story into individual statements, but it is quite variable. So it is not so that they claim to remember everything from their past life. They may, they claim to remember certain events of their past life, especially events that led to their death, which in most cases cases was a violent death. All right, Professor, I'm going to be devil's advocate for a minute so I don't get a whole lot of, you know, email, why didn't you ask? But, you know, there there are lots of cases where people allege to make or to recall memories of past lives. Bridie Murphy comes to my mind, a very famous case. And we learn that it was a hoax, that, you know, that, well, maybe they confabulated the information, maybe they made it up deliberately, uh, et cetera. How how did you guard against including any of these false memories and or hoax opportunities in your uh, research? Well, we uh, we interviewed the child and asked what he remembers from the past life. Then independently, we will interview the father and the mother to hear what they have heard the child say. Also, we may interview... Uh, brothers and sisters and playmates and grandfather and grandmother, we try to interview as many people as possible to see if there is some consistency in what the child has been talking about. And then we also have a further precaution. We may come and visit the case like a half a year or a year later and see if we still find the same the same statements. So we check these statements very carefully uh, to be sure that it is not just a a fiction of some kind. It must have been something that the child has been talking about for some time and that others have heard the child talk about. Curiosity prompts me to ask, did you have stories from these children, any of these children, that you couldn't verify, and so you excluded from your research. Uh, sorry, now I don't hear you well enough. But okay. I can say that when we have uh, uh, come to know the statement that the child has really been saying over time, and that it's, it is consistent, then we will try to find a person that fits that statement. Sometimes such a person has been found or is believed to have been found, but in that case we will then carefully recheck everything in that story and in the life of that particular person. So we are very um, do this well, uh, do this work very thoroughly. It is like a legal examin- a legal uh, study of a of a case. How many how many total cases have you accumulated, Professor? Excuse me. How many total cases do you now have about past lives? Well, I in uh, in Sri Lanka I studied some sixty four cases, and I have given a detailed report of several of them in my book on uh, on reincarnation. Uh, as well, I then came here. Uh, uh, and then I, I studied in, 
in Lebanon some, uh, was it, 32 or 34 cases. So uh, then I found one case here in Iceland, and then I helped uh, Stevenson to investigate uh, a past of, of a case or cases in India. So I think I may say I have studied nearly 100 cases of children who remember or claim to remember a past life. Well, when we come back, I'm going to ask you why so many cases in Sri Lanka and so few in a place like India. But we have a hard break. Well, We're speaking uh, with Professor. Well, you have to decide. Where we have to go to break, study. Professor. I, when we come back, we'll talk about that. We're speaking with Professor Erlander Haraldson about his remarkable book, I Saw a Light and Came Here. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at hi. I-S, commercial at sign. That's the snail symbol, Erlander. Now we have a video for you in our chat room featuring the professor's work with children who recall past lives as Buddhist monks. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself and that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. InnerTalk has over 300 programs to choose from, ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success. From accelerated learning to relationships, from habits and addictions to spirituality. Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to innertalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Erlander Haraldson about his remarkable book, I Saw a Light and Came Here. This is a great read, and it's uh, it's a scientific book looking at uh, something I think most of us would uh, would normally think of as being very spiritual. 
Uh, if you wanted evidence, if you wanted documentation, if you um, wanted to convince yourself, it's a book to read. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at hi period dot that is hi dot is and then the snail symbol Erlander. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology, as you know by now, is not just a avocation of mine. It's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So we just played some of Lighthouse's Light the Way. Tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you and how did it inform us about who you are. Uh, would you repeat the question? Sure. We just played your favorite music. Why is it important to you, and how does it tell us who you are? You mean how this research is important to me? Yes. Well, I think uh, um, uh, any research that tries to answer some questions is uh, is worthwhile, and uh, there are some children who claim to memory, to have memories of past life, and I think it is a worthwhile effort to investigate it thoroughly and see if there can be any truth in what they are saying. Now, that is what uh, I and, uh, like Stevenson, have been doing. And the results are very interesting. It is not so that the, that uh, all of these children, uh, what they say, can be verified, but about uh, one-third or a bit more can be verified. And uh, so there is something in what they are saying, and uh, it is well possible that these are actual memories of a past life. There have been other uh, sort of... Uh, explanations like that these children have a capacity to go into the zoom-in on someone who has passed away in the past and get information from him. But that is a bit bit far-fetched, I think. Then there is one very interesting feature of these cases, and that is that some of these children, they have birthmark. I told you earlier that uh, a large number of these children, they speak about that they died violently, like through accidents. And uh, then we have found that uh, these accidents often uh, uh, leave a mark on the body and, uh, uh, and a large uh, birthmark is found where that uh, where the previous personality is known to have suffered uh, a, a wound or a, that led to his or her death. How frequent is it for somebody to die a violent death and have a a birthmark uh, where what they were stabbed or shot or impaled by some object or something of that nature. How common is that? Sorry, how common is what? How common is it for someone to have a birthmark as yeah. a result or that corresponds to a wound in a prior life? Well, we haven't really looked at how many people have birthmarks and see then if they remember any past life. But some of the children who claim past lives, they have birthmarks. And uh, we have uh, had uh, very good evidence from uh, post-mortem uh, post uh, reports that... Uh, they uh, they had birthmarks where they suffered a violent death on that spot, like in the case of Purnimaya Kanayaga that I describe in detail in the book. And there are also other cases. So this is pretty well, uh, uh, pretty well uh, verified. Then Stevenson, who was sort of the grand master of reincarnation studies, uh, 
he uh, published two volumes on Rothbard cases and deformation cases. But perhaps there's one thing that I would like to bring up, and that is, I told you in the beginning, I wanted to study in these children uh, who have uh, these memories differ in any important way from normal children. And in fact, they do. I tested them, them with some psychological tests. For example, they have a greater vocabulary at a young age than, than children of the same age. They tend to do very well in school. Uh, they are quite uh, uh, industrious in school. And uh, and they uh, get uh, come out well in some uh, simple tests of intelligence. So these are often gifted children. But then there is another side to them, and that is that uh, some of them have uh, fears and. Uh, uh, that uh, fears that they usually relate to the way they died, because it seems they are thinking about this, the mode of death very frequently, and that may cause what we call in psychology post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, so that's what they have. Uh, and so they have they are very gifted, but they are also have more problems than other children. That's interesting. So uh, when you looked at them from a psychological standpoint, yeah. if, you, if you were to uh, divorce that child from, uh, from the memories, from being... A, a, what I want to say, I guess, is if their memories hadn't been treated as though they were real, do you believe that the psychology of the child would be the same? Well, uh, I think in uh, in many of the cases, some of the cases, we verify these memories that, that the child has. We, uh, are, for example, let me tell you about one case. Please. It was a boy. He claimed to have lived in a, in a nearby in a Capricia moon, and he had had arms and pistols and hand grenades and things like that. And uh, then uh, and he had been shot. And then his parents decided to take him to Capricia moon after he had been begging them for it for a long time. And when they came there, they found a family uh, where the husband had been killed. He had been the bodyguard of a very uh, important uh, Druze personality in uh, in Lebanon, and uh, and his statements really fitted quite well uh, the life of that particular uh, personality. Uh, yes, so so we find cases that are quite impressive, but I would say only about ten percent of the cases we investigate are really impressive. About twenty percent are really impressive. Maybe about forty percent there is something in them, but then they have many cases where there seems to be no evidence of any kind for that they are, are, are correct. Professor, did you have any in the hundred that you studied that were suicidal or had committed suicide in a prior life? Well, uh, there were many few cases of suicide. I only remember one case. It was a boy who lived in the mountains of Lebanon and uh, he was saying to his parents, he has a home in, uh, in Beirut, near the sea, near a mosque, near a, a small harbor with boats, and so on and so forth. And also 
so that he had lived on the first floor of a building so that he could uh, jump over the balcony to the street. And there were some more statements. Well, uh, they first did nothing about this, but then uh, the boy's father asked a friend of his in Lebanon, to, in Beirut, to investigate the case. And he found, and by the way, the, the boy had said his name was, had been Rabia in the previous life. And he found a, a family uh, that lived in the Jal al-Bar district, close to the sea and close to a small harbor with boats, and to a, to a small mosque. And, and it, uh, this family lived on the ground floor, so it, was, uh, it had been easier for the boy to jump over the balcony to the street. Well, anyway, uh, during the Civil War, this uh, boy uh, left for America, for California, where he studied, I think it was electrical engineering, but he became depressed. He wanted to go home. I didn't have money to do it. So he attempted suicide, but uh, not successfully. And then a distant relative took him to his home. <clears throat> but then one night when they came home, then they found him that he had hanged himself in their garage. And, uh, but uh, the boy never said that uh, he had committed suicide. But by the way, one of the things he said was that I live in two, two countries, uh, and uh, one to which I have to go by airplane. And that fits the boy well, because he, uh, he of course, lived in California at that time. Um, but he was saying that he had been beaten up and gave some other explanation, but never mentioned that he had committed suicide. So, did, did the boy... Case is. This did is the, a case of... Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's in my book. Was Was this boy still depressed and still suicidal in his reincarnated state, in his new carnation, incarnation? Um, sorry, now, I, again, I do not hear you properly. The boy you just told us about, in his yes. new incarnation, was he, did the suicidal tendency, his depression, did it continue? No, the, the, the present boy... He didn't have any suicidal tendency that we were aware of. No, he was not. Okay. One of he the was a normal boy. So. One of the theories that I've heard put forward, Professor, uh, about these young people that seem to come right back in, that is, they're here and there's still evidence of their prior life. Maybe it's in their family or or a friend, or something of that nature. Uh, Is it their life ends suddenly, uh, prematurely, and they come right back in as quick as they can, as opposed to doing anything in between lives? Have you found that to be true? Well, if I understand you rightly, in like in um, Lebanon and uh, Sri Lanka, we we uh, rarely found what you call in-family cases, and uh, namely that uh, that the person uh, who spoke about a previous life had previously lived in the same family. So that was very rare. But there is one uh, man we should mention, and that is uh, Jim Tucker of the University of Virginia. He has emphasized the study of American and European cases, particularly American cases, and found some very interesting ones. Hmm. Let me ask you this, Professor. Do you think that past life memories and encounters with 
the dead become relevant with respect to the question of life after death and possible life before birth? Yes, I think it is uh, relevant for the question of of life after death because it is relevant for the question of life before death. But I am not saying we can't be absolutely sure about it, but we have considerable evidence for this. And it has been accumulating. There, there are now a, a great number of very detailed studies of children who uh, seem to remember a, a past life and whose uh, memories have been verified, not only by Stevenson and me, but also some others. Did you have children that remembered between lives? I mean, they remembered their past life, but did they remember between lives? You were talking about the uh, twins? Yeah, the children that you interviewed, uh, this hundred cases. Yeah. Were there any of them that could tell you what the afterlife was like? Did they remember the afterlife? I'm sorry, I, I don't I hear the, the phone is not good, I think. I hear you not clearly. I'm sorry. Let me try that again. We live, we die, there's an afterlife, we reincarnate. Did any of the children remember the afterlife, that state between death and being born again? Oh, yes. Like this Punima Kanayaka I mentioned earlier, she remembered observing her family after her death and their grief. And then she was hovering uh, around in semi-darkness, as were also others. And she saw a light and came here, she said. Namely, she was born into the family that she is, uh, she was, she is living with now. And there was also one uh, uh, boy uh, who claimed to have been a senior monk in a in a monastery in Sri Lanka, and he very much wanted to be dressed like monk. He behaved like a monk. I was very different from other other boys, and uh, uh, and he uh, stated that uh, he remembered uh, that he was in a, some kind of a state between his previous death and the present life. And he said that he was among the devas, like we would say in, in, in the Christian sphere, he was among the angels. Tell us about deathbed visions, Professor. Excuse me? Tell us about deathbed visions. Deathbed visions. Well, uh, uh, it has long been observed that some people, before they die, they have visions of deceased relatives or spouses and so on, and even some uh, some religious uh, beings like angels. And uh, uh, with callosis, I did a major study of deathbed visions that we conducted both in the U.S. and in India. And we got uh, our data from doctors and nurses who told, about, told us about their observations of people who were having visions, or we, we used to call them hallucinations, and, uh, and these uh, visions were of a particular kind. They were usually uh, so that the person experienced that someone had come, someone they knew, and that person indicated to them or told them and so on that they were going to take them to the other world. And uh, so... We, Carlos and I, we came to call these cases take-away cases. It was almost like a routine. These, these uh, 
these uh, beings who had lived before and had died, they were there to help the dying to get uh, into their into the new world. And uh, yeah, a very interesting uh, phenomena. And our book, as the hour of death, it was published in many languages and is still uh, still uh, still available. And since then, there's also one Fenwick, Peter and Elizabeth Fenwick, they have made a study of desperate visions in hospices. And the carers in the hospices, they think that uh, these uh, desperate visions, they are not uh, hallucinations of the ordinary type. They are a natural sign of impending death, that the person is close to death. And they are also not uh, related to uh, drug intake or uh, or some uh, sickness that may cause hallucinations. I hate to cut you off, sir. It's a most interesting book. I saw a light and came here. Children's experiences of reincarnation. Um, again, it's a, a factual document that I think just about everybody interested in reincarnation is going to be interested in reading. I want to thank you, Professor, for your willingness to share with us and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week as well. Until then, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.